Welcome to Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus, and we're back with uh, Sharon Salzberg, uh, part two. And this is uh, a talk that uh, I've uh, cut up for this podcast. There was a it was a night that she came and did a, a weekend with us here in Asheville, North Carolina, and um, this part of the talk is uh, about loving kindness which in Pali is called metta and uh, Sharon is uh, uh, Sharon's really introduced loving kindness and metta in this country uh, absolutely and uh, is uh, this is such an important important um, practice and also important to understand because we're you know when we talk about metta love loving kindness uh, as she says this isn't about uh, uh, the love that is a medium of exchange that all of us know quite well uh, you know and it's not about I'm going to love myself as long as I n- never make a mistake you know the self-judging that going so this is not what loving kindness is this is not loving kindness um, is not uh, uh, this love is n- is not foolish or weak I mean that's uh, she says that a lot uh, so this loving kindness is not a weak thing Loving kindness is a powerful force, and and uh, metta. This is really the core description of it. Metta, loving kindness, is the spirit of friendship towards yourself. It's the spirit of friendship towards yourself. I mean, that is just so beautifully said. Uh, it's just terrific, and you know, there's another. It at one point. Uh, Myself just listening, I was there, and then listening to it, of course, you get a whole other uh, perspective. But at one point, I just thought, wow, the way that this comes together with my own familiarity with the bhakti tradition, where I come from with Maharaji and Ram, you know, Ramdas Krishnas and us, uh, that lineage. And of course, we met Sharon way back then, just when we first met Maharaji. And, you know, she's been just part of our family, as I said in the last podcast, for a very long time. Um, but uh, the way that the, it comes together is just really uh, so sweet. It's just so sweet. And, and here, I'll show you what I mean. Um, so, loving kindness. It's a deep sense of being connected to self. It's an inner abundance and therefore connected to others. And it's not that you need to like everyone. That's not what it's about. But everyone in some way counts. Everyone in some way counts. We live in an interconnected universe. And, and interdependence is not necessarily romantic, but it's the truth of things, that our lives have something to do with one another. And, you know, she then herself brought up this thing where Maharaji has said, in the past, never throw anyone out of your heart. And so the incident, which actually Ramdas just recently um, told the story at a, at a retreat we just had, the incident was that Maharaji, who used to tell us over and over and over, let go of anger. You know, anger, you know, don't get angry. <laughs> Uh, really, uh, that was one of the four major impediments to uh, to freedom. Uh, anger, you know, anger is. Uh, I mean, I am all too familiar. So this is all roost right at home uh, for me. So um, anyhow, so one day we were in the back of uh, the ashram. There was a, a front courtyard and backyard. In the back were, were you know rooms and so on where we used to take rest and all. And, and there was one building where Ramdas was on the upstairs part, and he looked out the window, and he could see Maharaji sitting out there, and he was absolutely screaming at this guy, um, you know, over and over, and throwing him out, and it was like a scene. And Ramdas ran down to Maharaji, who said, "You think I'm? Uh, no." He said, "Are you? Uh, are you angry, Ramdas?" I mean, Ramdas was completely freaked because he said all the time, "Give up anger," and there he is, completely excoriating another person. Um, that person, by the way, was stealing ghee from the back in the kitchen and selling it up the street. So he was like, you know, what was he thinking kind of guy? Um, and so, you know, he had to, he was thrown out on his ass uh, immediately. And then Maharaji said, 
You can get angry, but never throw anyone out of your heart. And that was a huge lesson, obviously, for Ramdas, but for, for all of us. And it is what this is all about. It's not a matter of liking everybody, but through loving kindness, first towards yourself and then towards others, you never throw them out of your heart because you realize that w- the way that we are interconnected, that is impossible to do. And you're doing what you're doing there is doing it to yourself. Now, this is, you know, very, very difficult for any of us to follow through with. But it is, you know, there is a practice. And by the way, go to SharonSalzberg.com. And she has many books and audio and all sorts of uh practices around this particular around loving kindness that uh, you can take advantage of um what else does she say here um we all want to be happy it's only through ignorance we create suffering for ourselves and others remember to look at the good you know and that's not something we do uh as she says we're trained to come to the end of the day and think of what to complain about I mean, that, and that's an enjoyable thing. And, you know, we're all digging complaints. I mean, I'm the worst, so I really understand. This is all about me. This, this uh, talk is just like, she could have just had me alone in that room and it would have been right. Okay, got it. Um, you know, she is, uh, and by the way, this, see, another thing, how we were talking or I was talking before about how this stuff gets uh, connected between Buddhism and Bhakti and how we've been so interconnected. Not with just Sharon. We just did a thing with Joseph, uh, with uh, Jack Cornfield, and then Joseph uh, Goldstein has been very much uh, connected to, to us as, as well. So, um, but Maharaji did say at one point, see everything for the good. And not easy to follow because in the moment it feels like a lot of suffering and you can't see anywhere. Uh, but then you go down the road, many of us, I know we all have had that uh, opportunity to look and go, wow, that was a great thing to get me freer. So uh, that's another um, another something around, um, you know, it's it's around, we you know, it's intention. This is something, uh, actually, uh, in, in talking with uh, Jack Cornfield, uh, we did a podcast with him, which you'll hear maybe on mindrollingpodcast.com in the next a uh, short while, um, and it was, you know, we talked a lot about uh, intention, you know, it's just like, based on all of the realization of, of this inter- to, inter- interdependence, interconnectivity, then we have nothing to do but uh, align our intention with that heart space. And uh, this is really what loving kindness is uh, practice is all about, and uh, it it is uh, something that has been tremendously helpful. I mean, I have been involved. Uh, I met, uh, I mean, Sharon in those days at uh, uh, in Bodhgaya at these uh, you know uh, re- uh, uh, you know ten day meditation courses, and you know have been involved in vipassana for a very long time, but only upon uh, coming back to America and then knowing Sharon uh, here, only then did I really get introduced to, to loving-kindness meditation. And it's, it, you know, it, 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 it is more relevant now than ever with what is going on in this world and how we are so hooked up electronically and how, you know, uh, how we could take advantage of something like this and share something like this. So it's, it's really... Uh, Please do go to her website, SharonSalzberg.com. And for uh, and those books, I mean, you know, obviously uh, we'd love for you to come through uh, the Amazon portal on uh, ramdas.org. And through that, you whatever you buy, we get a little tiny piece of, but it helps support uh, what we're trying to do here. And then furthering that idea, uh, we've been doing a crowdfunding campaign for the last couple of months. We're on the last week of it. It's going to end just a few days before Christmas and uh uh, hopefully you'll hear this, uh, you'll, you'll have a week still or something like that to still be able to uh, get on and support urgencynetwork.org slash be here now, or you can go to ramdas.org and just enter through, uh, you know, one of the banners up on the home page, and you get a chance to win a three-day retreat, personal retreat with Ramdas, all expenses paid, meaning airfare and everything, 
and uh, and in that way you will also help support us. This is just these podcasts and and the forty five fifty years of uh, of uh, history that we have on videotape, audio tape, and God knows uh, we we need to digitize it. We need to. Uh, uh, you know, log it and archive it and make it available, you know, with tremendous, uh, you know, finite searches that everyone can find loving kindness, for instance. Uh, so please do support that uh, if you can in this last week. And um, and here is Sharon. Enough of that. Uh, but it's important, though. And here's Sharon Salzberg. Uh, the second part of her talk in Asheville of just about a month, uh, six weeks ago or so, uh, and it's on Ramdas here and now. I want to say a little bit more about loving kindness, um, and then just <coughs> we can just hang out and have a discussion. So, in addition to this kind of quiet way that loving kindness and compassion can develop, there are certainly practices that are specifically dedicated to trying to deepen those qualities, and that's what um, you know we'll do a lot of tomorrow. The word loving kindness itself is kind of peculiar, I know. Uh, it's a translation. It's the most common translation of this word in the Buddhist tradition, metta, M-E-T-T-A. Uh, those of you, who, I know some of you have been to the retreat center I co-founded in Massachusetts, the Insight Meditation Society, or their literature, our literature may be here. It tends to follow me around. Um, and then you know, it's a large brick building with white pillars, and it has this word up above, metta, M-E-T-T-A. Uh, we moved in in 1976. I came back from India in 1974. Um, and we, we co-founded, uh, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and I co-founded the retreat center in 1976. And at the time we bought it, it was a Catholic novitiate. It was run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and that's what it set up above the doorway. So we moved in on Valentine's Day, it was really cold, and we got someone to get up on a ladder, a very tall ladder, on a very cold day, and we said to them, could you please rearrange those letters so that it says something about us and what we represent in the world? And so they got up there and they played around with the letters and they came up with metta, M-E-T-T-A, which means loving kindness, or is usually translated as loving kindness. And what then followed was this big debate as many of you, I'm sure, have started something um, kind of new or innovative, and you're not on really sure ground. You don't know what is right or wrong. And so we had this big debate, like, why don't we have a word in English? Nobody knows what that means. You know, we're not in Asia anymore. It doesn't make any sense. And, uh, but the point of view, which I happen to have, um, that really wanted it, to stay prevailed, because here we are all these years later and it's still up there. Um, and the reason I like it is because uh, you know, a delivery person or somebody will call asking for directions and whoever answers the phone will say it's a large brick building with white pillars and it's got this word up above, meta. And then they usually say, what does that mean? And we say that means loving kindness or that means love. Loving-kindness is the common translation. I think it's a little problematic because the word is not so commonly used in our society. It's like if you were in a cafe or a waffle place in uh, Hickory, like I was earlier today, <laughs> you would not really expect the conversation at the next table necessarily to include the word loving-kindness. It might, but likely it would not. And so my concern is that that might make the trade itself, the quality of itself, seem somewhat arcane and removed from day-to-day -day life, which it's not. The word love, of course, and some people prefer, some scholars prefer that as a translation, is very complicated for us. We can mean so many different things. When we say love, sometimes we really frankly mean a medium of exchange. Like, I will love you as long as you love me in return. 
or as long as the following 15 conditions are met. I once used that example somewhere and someone in the room called out only 15 conditions, you know, so I will love you as long as, or I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake, right? And we know that quality, but we also know how breakable it is, how fragile it is. I mean, really, I would love myself as long as I never make a mistake. So that's not really what metta means. The literal translation of the word is friendship. So it means having a spirit of friendship toward yourself, toward others, toward life itself. That doesn't mean complacency. It doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean you don't have values. It doesn't mean you're not strong or even forceful. It means that you have a deep, deep sense of being connected. Connected to yourself, your inner strength, a sense of inner abundance, and connected to others. It doesn't mean you like everybody. It doesn't mean you like anybody. But you have this deep sense that our lives have something to do with one another. That everybody in some way counts. That it's very interesting to me at the time we live in because this idea of connection or interconnection isn't just contained in spiritual pursuit. Science teaches us this, and economics teaches us this, and environmental consciousness certainly teaches us this that what happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there, it ripples out over here. And what we do over here, it matters because we live in an interconnected universe. Even epidemiology teaches us this. Did any of you see the movie Contagion? Well, we have a a very old friend um, who used to work in the smallpox campaign in India who was a technical advisor on the film. And so he brought me to the opening in New York City. And basically, it was, so it was like, Modeled, you know, it was a scientifically accurate possibility. It wasn't just like a wild kind of made up thing. So basically, in the film, day one, somebody has a really bad day in Hong Kong. Day four, half the earth is wiped out. And it was the kind of theater going experience where, like, if somebody sneezed, everyone else, like, <laughs> cowered, you know, like, oh my God, you know, like, what do you have? So the idea of interdependence or interconnection isn't romantic. It's not sentimental. And it's not always pleasant. But it's the truth of things. That our lives have something to do with one another. And that's that feeling, that feeling tone, the heart's response to that is what we mean by metta. Not that we like everybody. And not that we're going to be a patsy or a doormat or invite everyone to move in with us or say yes all the time or give money to everybody who asks. You know, it's not about that, but it's in the heart space. In fact, um, Neem Kareli Baba, uh, whom Raghu mentioned, was amongst the sayings he's very well known for is the saying, never throw anyone out of your heart. Never throw anyone out of your heart. And... um, One of my colleagues, this friend, Sylvia Borstein, had a kind of addendum to that where she said, never throw anyone out of your heart. You might throw them out of your life, but never throw them out of your heart. We don't know what we will decide through discernment is the best course of action to take in a particular circumstance, in a particular context. Maybe it's really mellow and sweet. Maybe it's really fierce. And, you know, very with strong boundaries and saying no. We don't know that. But the heart space can be one of inclusion and caring. So that's the the nature of loving kindness, is that bone-deep recognition of the fact that our lives are connected. And so the corollary to that is that everybody counts, everybody matters. 
loving kindness in difficult circumstances is something that I extrapolated from this recent book as a, as a topic, as something to look at. We train the mind in paying attention differently so that maybe we have the habit, as one example, looking at ourselves pretty well only thinking about what's wrong. Maybe we have the habit at night of looking back at our day and kind of evaluating ourselves as though to say, well, how did I do today? Let's just say. And maybe in that, we pretty well only remember the, the mistakes we made and the things we didn't say quite right and the really stupid thing we said at lunch at that meeting, let's just say. Perhaps so much so that our whole sense of who we are and all that we will ever be just collapses around that really stupid thing we said at lunch at the meeting. So the, the process of loving kindness is like stretching. It's like almost like saying, anything good happened today? Any good within me? It's not delusional and it's not phony. It's not make-believe. It's not like saying, oh, what a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch at the meeting. Maybe it was really stupid. And there are consequences for that. But that's not all that we are ever. So it's that collapse, that over-identification that we're challenging. So that's the practice, is to stretch. Not to ignore and say, oh, you know, I was perfect, but but to include that which may get very little airtime, the good within us, the good in others. And if we can't see the good in others, then to remember, we all want to be happy. We actually all want to be happy. And it's through ignorance that we do the things that can create so much suffering for ourselves and for others. But we all really want to be happy. There's so much that we share in life. So this is something that we, we bring up when things are going really well, but we might be kind of half asleep and complacent and not really taking them in. Remember to look at what is good. There's a, um, you know, a lot of popular research these days says that one of the most powerful healing things any one of us can do each day is just keep a gratitude journal to write down three things at the end of the day that you're grateful for from the day. And I always say one can be that you're breathing. You know, it doesn't have to be really grandiose. And I also say that, you know, my personal, my cultural conditioning is not one where that comes naturally. <laughs> I much more tend, I'm trained to come to the end of the day and think what I can complain about. How can there possibly be one person working at Newark Airport <laughs> retrieving baggage? from flights that got canceled. Six flights got canceled. I mean, really, does that make sense that there is one human being who has to go to God knows where they go, you know, like some cavernous place, getting bags? I mean, what about that poor guy? He had to go all the way to LaGuardia, waiting for his, you know, he's waiting for his bag. And what about that person? And, you know, my problem was the least of it. And even I was so inconvenienced. And, right? That's more what I'm trained to. Like, um, I was teaching somewhere um, with Krishnadas actually some time ago, and uh, one of the people uh, playing music with him was trying to teach us jokes. So here's the joke. It's my only joke. I'm hoping to see him again in March and learn another joke. But um, here's the joke, which I may not do very well. But um, it's New York City, and this group of women is sitting 
uh, at a table at a restaurant, and the waiter comes up to them and says, is anything all right? <laughs> In contrast to, is everything all right? That's how I was trained. And probably why, you know, since I'm from there. So for me to come to the end of the day and think, okay, what do I have to be grateful for is a stretch. It takes intentionality. It's like a, a sense of purpose. It's a sense of exploration and experimentation. This is not what I'm used to. Let me try it out. But it's not phony. It's not like saying, wonderful system, luggage handling at Newark Airport, you know, couldn't be better. You know, and this is the crux of the question. Can we find strength in places where we actually might assume we'll be weakened? And of course, that's the experiment. We believe, yes, of course. Very powerful to have that sense of connection. And the actions we take based on that will be more clear and more effective rather than feeling so fragmented and so um, overcome by an emotion like anger. It's not that anger is all bad. It has some powerful energy in it. But there's a way uh, we get overcome, right? It's like if you think about the last time you were really, really angry at yourself. I don't know how long ago that might have been. But that's probably not a time where you also thought, you know, I did five good things this morning too. Right, it's all like So it's that collapse, that tunnel vision, that certainty, that's all that I am. That's what we challenge. And so I really see it, it's a tremendous experiment to see are there different ways of responding in this same situation and to give it a shot. It is very interesting. It's not like we will always get what we want and it will always be so magnificent because life is life. It's mixed. But we will be a whole lot happier and also be coming from a place of much greater truth. <coughs> it was so great for me yesterday seeing that Buddhist monk First, his line was like five times longer than mine, and mine was long enough. But, you know, the way the lines goes is like every once in a while, we'd be like approaching, you know, because you have to go through those ropes thing, things. And, you know, so every once in a while, he'd be coming toward me, then I'd see him going away, and then you'd be coming toward me. It's like, oh, right, that's a possibility. And then he'd be going away. That, um, and there it was, you know, in the in this sea of people like screaming and freaking out. And I can understand the freak out. I thought, huh, it seemed like a good idea to go to Asheville. <laughs> and like, what if I don't make it by Friday night? Wouldn't that be bad, you know? But still, we suffer so much. And what's already a, a maybe a complicated, uncomfortable difficult situation. We don't have to add all of that. And so it's a question of remembering what we really care about, remembering where happiness lies, remembering where strength lies, and then using mindfulness to realize, I have a choice here. I actually don't have to yell at this person who's just working here. I can be forceful, I can be strong, I can be insistent even, but maybe I don't have to be so hostile. And that opens up our lives, because then we have so much room to be creative and to experiment and to find our way in, in all of life's situations. So what are you all thinking? Do you have any questions or comments, anything you'd like to talk about? We have a microphone, which would be fantastic if you could use. I can really project. I, my name's Loretta. You really can. <laughs> I, I'm so glad to meet you. Um, 
So I was in Atlanta Monday to see the Dalai Lama, and this is much better. <laughs> wow, thank you. I don't think Raga would agree with you. <laughs> so a lot of times, um, my biggest, uh, I'm, I can't tell the difference between joy for me or gratitude. They're all kind of connected there. But right beneath, it isn't even hardly a surface, when that feeling comes up of that gratitude, there is a tremendous sadness right beneath that. It's a, it's a real mourning. And I mean, I'm a medical person, so immediately I diagnose myself, you know, and um, it just, I, I, I just get this confusion or frustration with what is that? Should I do something about it, you know? I feel like it's the sorrow of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's my thought, was that um, I think there's a fine line for us. And, you know, I don't know if you're coming tomorrow, but we'll talk much more about compassion also. But um, there's a lot of poignancy in this life that we have this joy and maybe not everyone Maybe everyone has the potential, but not everyone has the access internally or externally. Uh, people can have so much and feel so impoverished. Um, people can live. If everybody really wants to be happy, which I believe, it's also clear not everyone is living in a way that will accomplish that. It's a little bit like knowing someone who says they're really lonely, and then you watch how they speak to people who try to help them out, and you think, well, no wonder. You know, but it's so poignant, like, because that urge to connect and be happy is genuine, but you just can't figure out how to make it work. There is a kind of sorrow, I think, that waking up um, brings us to, but when it gets too much, then we get depleted because we're refusing to connect to our own joy or we're feeling too responsible sometimes to make it all better, which we can't. It's like we can do what we can do, but we can't just like say, poof, it's all better. Um, you know, so that is also an exploration in itself. It's like, where's that line and can we learn the felt sense, the visceral sense of going over the line and then coming back. It's like, um, of course, today my favorite part of being on the airplane, uh, like for many people, are the safety announcements that are so commonly used in kind of spiritual discourse these days, where the flight attendant says, in the event of cabin pressure dropping and the oxygen mask comes down, put your own on first before you try to help anybody else. Um, it's like that's something we often forget. And just as an image, as an idea, so many of my colleagues use it and write about it and so on. I said to somebody once, I think I can't say it anymore because it's just become a cliche, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first. And then she, the person I was talking to told me this story. She said, you know, I was just on an airplane and they made that announcement, and the person in the seat next to me said, I could never do that. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe I can keep using it, <laughs> you know, like, all right. <laughs> you know, so th it's all in there. I think that's, that's all part of it in some Thank way. You so much. Thank you. Actually, my favorite, favorite moment was when we landed. I thought, oh, good. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I made it. No, they didn't clap. <laughs> That's always alarming when they clap to me. <laughs> Shouldn't this be a matter of course? <laughs> Hi, Tara. Hi. I have a question about practice. 
And um, one of the things I noticed, you know, after practicing for some time, is that in concentration practice, it's like I, I'm having a hard time finding the balance between being too concentrated and not concentrated enough. Mm -hmm. And it's a metaphor for my life anyway. But I wonder, you know, how to work with that. Because sometimes, uh, even tonight, I found myself almost sweating, you know, with concentrating on my breath. And so I mm -hmm. wonder how to, how to let loose of that a little bit, finding mm -hmm. that balance. Mm -hmm. Well, the, as you know, I'm sure the essence is balance. And um, there are ways we could be working with being very present, but without being tight. Like I was once teaching somewhere, it was a non-residential weekend, and it was Saturday morning. And um, I use the word concentration because that's the word. You know, I've been using it for 40 years. It's a common translation. And somebody came up to me and he said, how much money would it take for me to offer you for you to promise not to use the word concentration again for the rest of this weekend? And I said, let's talk. <laughs> and so clearly for him, concentration meant something like really tight, like, you know, drive your attention into the breath and hold on to it and resent and reject anything else that comes up. And I said, how would it be for you? Would it work for you if every time I said concentration, because that's just the way I'm used to saying it, you translated that in your mind to settle. Just settle or center, or rest. And he said, that would work. And I said, you just saved yourself a lot of money. <laughs> you know, so sometimes we look at things like that. Sometimes there is too much effort. Um, and then you can just relax. The, the important thing to remember about everything is that we're always going to have to begin again. And that's OK. You know, we would all like the perfect fix. Like, okay, I relaxed, and then I stayed relaxed for the rest of my life. <laughs> but it's unlikely. Mostly, you'll have to remember again and remember again. But that's okay. That's not second best. That really is how the process works. It's probably how everything works, actually. Um, and there are also ways in which it's almost like a specificity of that imbalance that could sometimes be the case. So for example, um, when I was first practicing, one of the reasons, the many reasons it was very difficult for me, I realized, was that because almost as soon as this breath was happening, I was sort of mentally leaning forward to get ready for the next 50. <laughs> and that habit of mind was something that existed in me, not just because I was sitting in a funny posture on the floor in India. That was very much my habit. I was very frightened. I was very wary. I was very guarded. I didn't know what might happen next. A lot had already happened to me in my life. And so for me, at that time, balance looked like settle back. Let the breath come to you. I used to say to myself, you're breathing anyway. All you need to do is feel it. Because I had so much performance anxiety, it's like I'd never done it before. You know, and it's just like, settle back. Let the breath come to you. And of course, we might be way too far back. It's like we couldn't care less what the breath feels like. And we kind of have to mentally come forward more and engage and participate. And I wouldn't want to encourage you, any of you, to sit there and think, am I too far forward? Am I too far back? You know? But sometimes we just know. It's like the intuition arises, like, settle back. Let the breath come to you. And so then you can just follow that. And over time, it really does come to a different kind of balance. It really does. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Something will happen. Something will happen. <laughs> now, if I had written to any of my friends, I mean, I wrote to Raghu because I was like, I'm in the airport. <laughs> My flight's an hour late, and then I'm in the airport. They just canceled it. I'm online, you know. But if I'd written to like, he was kind enough not to do this. But if I'd written to like 90% of my friends and said what was happening, they all would have written back and said something will happen. <laughs> so I say thank you. Um, thank you. Um, 
during your talk, um, you made a gesture of opening, and you said space. Will we cover more of that tomorrow? Because um, that really hit home to me, mm -hmm. um, especially in this day and age. Um, mm -hmm. How do you, whatever, maybe we have a belief system that is just seems to be, we think is so right and it's so hard to open. Mm -hmm. How can you do that? Uh, I think we open, or I open, let's put it that way, um, in many ways. Sometimes it's because uh, through mindfulness I can look at the different things, we can look at the different things that close us down. And in seeing that, like when I was describing anger, um, being and I'm not talking about feeling anger, I'm talking about being overcome by anger, really being lost in it. It does give us a kind of tunnel vision. I'm always saying the wrong thing. That's all that I am, you know? And if we can see that and let go of that, then we find space. So the example I commonly use is talking about looking at my own mind and looking at fear. And when I, of course, it's not easy to look at these things, but when we actually practice mindfulness and we can pay attention to them instead of just being, oh my God, you know, I've been practicing meditation for 40 years and I still feel this, this shouldn't be here. I spent all this money in therapy, why is it still here? Um, you know, but that's what the training is to actually help us look. Then we learn a lot. So one of the things I learned about my own fear was that, by and large, in contrast to the common statement that we're afraid of the unknown, I mean, of course, I'm, I can be afraid of the unknown, too, but mostly I get really afraid when I think I do know, and it's going to be really bad. <laughs> so it's those stories I tell myself. That's the worst. And when I remind myself, actually, you don't know, it's like, then there's space. It's like, oh, wow, I don't know. That's a relief. You know, so that's something I observed just through paying attention. And it, it really gave me an avenue to realize I have options here. You know, I don't have to just be lost in this, in this one reaction. And then there's, there's a lot, which we will go through tomorrow, about loving kindness and space or spaciousness. Oh, we have two. Thank you. Hi, Sharon. Thank you. Uh, I had this experience about a, a week, a week and a half ago, where my feelings were hurt. And um, through this conversation I was kind of having in this group, kind of a, a, in a meeting, uh, this more experienced person. And um, through some uh, whatever's going on in my life, you know, heading in this direction, and um, needing to make some changes, and I and and I knew I was going to be meeting up with this person in a couple weeks, and and so with these hurt feelings, and I was feeling really kind of small, and you know, and had my whole story out of like you angered me this way, and it you know it kind of went on, and was holding on to this for for like a week, and and I was really kind of angry that you know like I just want to get this over with, you know that I, I needed. To tell I need to tell my story, you know. And uh, some, and so I got an, another week before this is going to happen, which is kind of funny. But it's given me some space where there's some letting go that I had um, in the last couple of days, and, and it has something to do with this quality, loving kindness, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I guess it's really kind of difficult to, you know, hold on to what you feel like I need to and what I need to just like, when I just need to be a part of it. So I don't know if you could maybe speak to Well, I think it's really fascinating. It's like an experiment, you know, it's like a big, big exploration because I think we're taught over and over again that holding on and holding on to a grievance and holding on to a grudge and, um, is what, you know, being vengeful even is what's going to make us strong. But sometimes you just look at it in that same quality of observation and you think, wow, I'm spending 
you know, 90% of my life's energy thinking about this other person, and I've given over so much to them, I want to bring it back. I want to own it, you know, rather than just be, it's like when you go through the list of someone's faults, and then you do it again, and then you do it again. It's like same faults. It's not like you discover new ones. It's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, you know, it's like I'm in a long time going over that list. Um, you know, so some of it has to do with that, and some of it has to do with, um, and you know, we will go over this much more tomorrow. It's like understanding that we can take responsibility for our motivation, you know, for um, seeing where we're coming from in what we do or what we say. And in Buddhist thought, this is a little different than Western thought, where the intention or the motivation behind an action doesn't really count for much. But in Eastern psychology, it's very, very crucial. Like if I reached down and picked this up and offered it to one of you, it's very nice. All anybody sees is my hand moving down and picking up an object and moving it forward, right? But what's in my heart that is sparking that action? You know, maybe I'm offering it to you because I like you and I want you to have it. Or maybe I'm offering it to you because the camera's going and I just gave this big talk on generosity and I want everyone to think I'm a really generous person. Or I see you have a coffee mug I really like. And I think, well, hey, you know, I'll give you this <laughs> and you'll give me that. Or maybe, um, you know, I'm offering it to you because I don't like you. And I think, well, you know, you're going to think this is... Um, filled with tea, you know, carefully brewed and uh, imbued with honey and lemon. It's just water, huh? You know. <clears throat> you know, same smile, same gesture, but coming from a very different place. Or a million other possibilities, right? So that's why the motivation behind an action is is very interesting. We practice mindfulness to kind of know where we're coming from. And it's said, interestingly enough, that practices like loving-kindness meditation transform our field of motivation. So if we have largely been coming from a place of fear or a sense of alienation and we do something like loving-kindness practice, we will find ourselves coming from a place of connection in what we do or what we say. So that's one level of an action. And then there's the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the execution. That's what I meant by discernment. It's like we might be coming from a really loving place, but we might stop and think, you know, there's a lot of people in this room. I've only got one flask. Maybe I should offer it privately or do it in this way. It's like we do our best to be sensitive to context, where we are, to do things in the most skillful way possible. And then the third aspect of an action is the immediate result. And this is especially around, well, it's both around immediacy, which we'll talk about tomorrow, and also around praise or blame. <clears throat> you know, like maybe I'm very carefully, I look at my motive, I have a beautiful, generous motive in wanting to give it to you, I do it as sensitively as I can, as skillfully as I can, but you checked your cell phone messages just before walking in here, and you just found out you just won $10 million in the lottery. It's like you could not care less about this flask. <laughs> and you sort of nod distantly and you walk away. That's the place that we pretty well obsess about. You know, oh my God, you know, they didn't thank me. They didn't say it was the best thing they've ever gotten in their whole life. I'm an idiot. Why do I always give the wrong thing? And it's not to say we don't have things to learn in situations and from feedback, but that absolute sense of giving over our sense of who we are to someone else's reaction, it's hopeless, you know, because you can't say to somebody, something's going to happen at noon 
I want you to come into the room not having checked your cell phone messages, not having checked your email, not having had a single conversation, and, and not thinking about a single thing. I want your mind to be totally blank when you come in because something's going to happen. It's like life's not like that, you know? So there's such a, a mix of where we're coming from, where someone else is coming from, what we can affect, what we can't affect. Um, and learning to be able to kind of more graciously let God... We'll close now uh, in a few minutes. And I'll, I'll tell you this story, one of my favorite stories from the Buddhist tradition, kind of in that light, which I often bring up in my mind. Um, there's some story about the Buddha was doing something that angered this farmer. I don't know if he was like walking on his land or something without permission or something. So this, this farmer got just enraged at him and went over to him and started yelling and screaming and abusing him and cursing at him. And the Buddha said, oh, farmer, what happens if you nicely prepare a gift for somebody and you put it in your hand and you go to give it to them and they won't take it out of your hand? And the farmer said, well, then I guess it remains with me. And the Buddha said, just so. I'm refusing your gift <laughs> of screaming and yelling and reviling and cursing. It's going to remain with you. It's like, you don't have to say that to somebody. <laughs> but you can know it inside. You know, and so things are different. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.